As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. This podcast contains adult language and stories of true crime. If you don't like laughing, crying, or being horrified at the actions of other humans, this podcast is not for you. Resolvers or resolvers. What are they? Resolvers. <laughs> we still don't know three seasons later. <laughs> what are you? This is the true season finale of season three because this is episode 22, part two. This is the show where we rewatch, recap, and give you the latest updates to cases featured on the show Unsolved Mysteries. I'm Eliza. I'm Allison. And I'm Carlin. And we just want to remind you, and I'm going to be reading a few reviews at the end of this show uh, of True Sweeties. It's hard to pick. There are so many amazing ones. But you can go on and leave a review if you haven't yet. And for every review that we receive, we donate a dollar to a different organization. And this month's is a National Asian Pacific American Women's Forum. And we're excited to help them out. And you can help us help them out by leaving a review. And we still have a magnet giveaway going on, I think, if magnets are left. So you can go there, screenshot your review, and send it to our email, resolvedmysteriespodcast.gmail.com, with your mailing address, and we'll send you a magnet. And we appreciate it, and we love you. You can also support the show by going to Patreon. You'll get access to ad-free episodes, two additional episodes a month, and early access to listener short stacks along with goodies in the mail. So you can go to patreon.com slash podcast if you want to do that. And Carlin and Allison have some stories to tell you. What are you covering this episode, friends? I'm going to be talking about the Wanted segment of Gregory Barker. And then I have another Lost Loves, and it is the story of Jerry Graves. Oh, and then we're going to do a wrap-up, right? 
Yeah, we're going to do a little recap of which cases were solved because of Unsolved Mysteries. Fun! I love when we do that. Because of Mr. Stack. Mm -hmm. All right, let's do it. Okay, so this is the wanted segment of Gregory Barker. March 25th, 1982, 43-year-old divorcee Hilda Roche met a man at a, quote, fashionable singles bar in Alexandria, Virginia. Gross. I know. It's like, <laughs> I was like, is that even really a thing? Like right. bars for singles only? Ugh, I can't imagine what that's like. I don't like oh, it. Oh, a singles bar? Yeah. It's like right. a human Tinder. Yeah. <laughs> it's like an in-person Tinder. So the reenactment shows the two talking, and they start striking up conversation, and she tells him that she works for military intelligence, and he says he's a contractor for the military. Stack says that Hilda later told her friends that she had dinner with the man and planned on seeing him again. Quote, but oddly, she never told anyone his name. Which I don't think is that weird for someone she's known literally a week. No. Uh -huh. She's probably like, I've been seeing this guy, you know? Exactly. Right. Hilda's friend, who is not in shadow but is titled as only Hilda's friend, they don't give her name, huh. tells us that Hilda had said the guy was single, attractive, and had a lot of money, and, quote, she was impressed that he was driving this beautiful car. Again, again. Twice in one app. Ladies, ladies, it's just a fucking vehicle. Calm it's down. It's just sitting out there. You got to live with this guy inside, not in the car. <laughs> So the friend is with us because she says that she told Hilda, don't believe everything this guy's telling you. The car is probably rented. <laughs> Anyone can make up a big story. You don't know anything about him. Watch Queen. out. I love yes. it. Friend goals. Mm -hmm. So Stack says that a week later, April 2nd, 1982, the body of a nude woman was found in a wooded area near an elementary school. Mm. She'd been murdered execution style and there were signs of sexual assault and the police had no idea who the woman was. Oh, God. So just a little more detail of like the way she was found. When they found her, like these were the notes. She appeared to be in her late 30s or early 40s. She was unclothed except for her shoes. She lay face up with a bullet through her head on the path between John F. Patty Elementary School and several homes in the middle-class neighborhood of Montclair. God. Oh, God. And does it say was she killed there? We'll get into it. Okay, okay. And as mentioned on UM, there were no clues to her identity when she was found. Of course, she was naked. So what are you going to find that's going to identify her? Yeah, yeah. And this is not from UM. This is from an article. Quote, I remember wondering how he got a naked body into the woods without anybody seeing. It was very close to several homes over there, said James K. Sullivan, then the commander of the Prince William County Police Criminal Investigation Division. Hmm. It was very unusual in that sense. So back to Hilda. She had not shown up to work for a couple days, so her co-workers reported her missing. Mm. Which I always so appreciate that when we hear that in stories. Like, yeah. Some people don't have a lot of close right. people that they see every day, you know? Mm -hmm. So if you are the people that sees someone every day and you notice they're not there, say something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a reenactment of the county police coming to Hilda's home, uh, which was about nine miles from where the body was found, um, to investigate. And they look around the house and don't find anyone, but they find Hilda's wallet. And when the officer pulls out her ID, he knows right away she's the woman they had found murdered. Mm-hmm. Which is a little different from the news article I read about when they were identifying Hilda. 
um, Sergeant John Hutchins, the Identification Bureau commander at the time, found Hilda's military ID in her wallet, and it took three days to confirm identity by matching the fingerprints on the military ID to the fingerprints of the body. Oh, wow. Okay. So it was more of a process. Yeah. And I don't know if maybe a military ID also has a photo Mm-hmm. And, like, they were able to see that it was her, but then, like, confirming, confirming that she was the body yeah. two, three mm-hmm. days. I'm not sure. That makes sense. Stack says the evidence in the bedroom showed that Hilda had been sexually molested, mm. which I thought was a strange choice of words. <sighs> and, I mean, I don't know if that's, like, if a body isn't present, you can't say we know it was rape. But, like, obviously it was rape. Yeah, well, the in the segment, I think one of the police officers is kind of, like, it was there was clearly sexual activity or yes. something. You'll probably get to it, but yep. no boo. <laughs> yeah, it was just a weird way to skirt around it because we've had segments where they straight up were like yeah. rape, rape, you know, mm-hmm. sexually assaulted. Mm-hmm. So, Corporal Donald Cahill of the Prince William County Police Department says the bed in the whole bedroom was in disarray. They found her top, a pair of pants, some pantyhose, and a roll of adhesive tape. Ah. Uh. Quote, and that's an indicative of a struggle. And other evidence they found in the room, quote, indicated that some type of sexual activity took place. Mm-hmm. Why are you saying it that way? And why? And I don't know if that means they found fluids or what, but um, authorities found no signs of forced entry to the home, so they theorized that Hilda was murdered by someone she knew. Stack says that, quote, most homicide detectives agreed that the first 48 hours of, of a homicide investigation are the most crucial. Beyond that point, leads grow cold and suspects disappear. Hutchins said the lack of immediate identification of the corpse slowed efforts to identify the killer in the first hours after her death. Quote, usually the identification of the victim and the motive and the suspect go hand in hand, he said. Stack says that in this case, it took four days to identify Hilda Roche and more than three months to zero in on a suspect, a man authorities now believe may be a serial killer. Whoa. Mm-hmm. So the investigation began. Detectives interviewed Hilda's friends, and they learned more about the man Hilda had met at the bar the week before her death. Corporal Cahill says that the only details Hilda had told her friends was that the man was from Florida, he drove a nice car, He was a consultant for the government, and he lived in the Oakwood Apartments in Alexandria, which she'd been to before. So, investigators went to search the apartment records because they knew the apartments were the only clue to the man's identity. Mm -hmm. Imagine if they didn't have that one thing. It would have been Mm -hmm. never, never. Never. So... They looked through the last three, or the past three years of lease agreements and tried to match any information from them to the description of the man Hilda had met. Cahill says they went through twenty-five to 30,000 files. Wow. From that, they came up with 32 names that fit the profile that Hilda had described to her friends, which, keep in mind, was like four little facts. Mm-hmm. Right. Barely anything. Um, Stack says that they felt confident they were closing in and all they needed was a piece of evidence to link any of the 32 suspects to Hilda. Three months into the investigation, they got the break they needed. Authorities had learned that the same night Hilda met the man, she had lost her wallet. Stack says, quote, for some unknown reason, the mysterious suitor asked that he be contacted if the wallet was found. Mm. Weird. Yeah, which they did a reenactment of. And yeah. You're just like, wait, why? Why would you be the one? And I don't want a victim blame, but why would she allow that? I know. 
I mean, that's sad. I think she was just, like, going along with what the guy said, you know? So weird. A few days later, the restaurant found Hilda's wallet, which I noted was kind of weird because usually lost and found stuff is either found right away or not found. Right, yeah. So we'll come back to that a little bit later. Um, Hilda's friend says the guy was the one to call her and say he was going to go get the wallet. He says her impression was the guy was putting her on. So the bartender had asked to see his ID before she gave him the wallet. I'm guessing, like, to match the name of, like they said, call right. this mm-hmm. guy. So the bartender had seen his ID, but it was three months ago, so she mm. couldn't remember his name. So they put her under hypnosis to try to have her recall any other memories. Oh. So she was able to come up with a phone number of the man that was left at the bar to call if the wallet was found. Wow. Amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. Cahill says that the hypnotist told them it wouldn't be the exact same phone number. He said, quote, most of the numbers, they're going to be right, but they might be transposed or something. You're going to have to work with it. Mm -hmm. But when detectives compared the phone number to apartment residents, they came up with an almost exact match. Wow. So wild. Oh, man, that's so cool. Mm -hmm. It's wild to me that something like that can hang out in your brain that long. Something that doesn't matter to you at Mm -hmm. all. The number belonged to 38-year-old Gregory Barker, and some of the news articles I read said he was 35, so somewhere in his mid-30s, who they show us a photo of, and it should be noted that this time the reenactment actor looked absolutely nothing like the real person. Mm. He was like an older, stuffy man. He looked nothing like the guy. Yes, yes. Nothing like him. I don't know why that choice was made. Right. So Barker had moved out of the apartment complex shortly after Hilda's murder. So detectives began to investigate him. Cahill says they were not able to find a company or government agency Barker worked for, and they actually didn't believe that he worked for any agency in the area. He says they believed that what he'd been telling people at the apartment was all a story he'd completely made up and was a scam. Mm. Barker was a Vietnam veteran who had served two tours, and I later read that he received a Purple Heart after being wounded there. Mm. On his second tour, he'd served as an Army intelligence officer. He had achieved the rank of captain when he was discharged in 1973 during a reduction in forces. Stack also says, He is a voracious reader of spy novels, and detectives believe that his mental state had deteriorated to a point that he believed he was a master spy. Oh, no. Which is the strangest theory to develop. (laughs) So bizarre. I think it's so weird. Like, I don't know if there were some extra details they didn't give us that led them to that, but I thought that was really odd. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a jump. Um, but it and can, can we not explain away like murderous behavior by saying yeah. that someone thought they were a spy? True. Like, I don't <laughs> yes. understand. Yes. Stack says, based on Barker's psychological profile and crime scene evidence, Cahill has developed a theory of what happened that night. Cahill says he thinks Barker came to Hilda's house with the intention of returning the wallet, quote, and possibly something else in mind. I hate this, like, weird skirting around they're doing. He says he thinks there was a violent altercation in the living room. Then sometime later in the bedroom, her clothes were taken off and, quote, a sexual activity occurred there. Oh, my gosh. Why are they doing this? Why are we still not saying rape? I don't know. It's so odd. Maybe just these are the interviews that were given. I don't know. Yeah, um, yeah. like, I'm sure different police departments call it different things at that yeah, time. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. 
So then Cahill says he took Hilda against her will out of the house down to the school 9.5 miles away from the house. So, and the reenactment of this is terrible. Mm-hmm. He takes her there in the trunk of the car. Yeah. Demands she gets out at gunpoint. And Cahill continues his theory. She was naked the whole time. She's taken down a path to a wooded area between a housing development and the school, at which point he shoots her in the head and leaves the scene. Yeah, I felt bad for both of these actors because it's not like they're getting some big payout in a big movie to do this very traumatic scene. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Totally. terrible and it was well done like she was totally in silhouette but it did look like yeah. she was naked and yeah. like i don't know it was really scary and she's having to like cry the whole time or be mm-hmm. scared yeah cahill then says after doing a background check on barker they don't believe this is the first murder he had committed whoa yeah which made me wonder if the entire thing was like an elaborate plan like he stole her wallet he mm. kept it hidden so that she wouldn't find it before they left and she'd have to give up looking for it giving him the opportunity to leave his contact. And then he would be able to visit her house unannounced and be invited in because he had the wallet. Whoa. I don't know. That's just my own. Right. But there was something about it that made them think this wasn't the first time. So. Wow. Cahill says they also don't believe this is the last murder he committed. They think he could possibly even be a serial killer. Cahill says they are very sure of the fact that he's smart and he's dangerous. Hmm. And then there was the end of the segment, and there was an update, but we'll skip the one-liner and get to the real tea. Yeah, do it. So, in 1992, a woman named Becky Granis, who lived in Phoenix, was watching Unsolved Mysteries when the Gregory Barker segment came on. Quote, they showed a picture of this guy, Granis said. I was sitting in my living room saying, I know that man. Mm. My sister-in-law was home watching, too. She called me right away and said, are you watching Unsolved Mysteries? Oh, the dream, oh the gosh. dream. I know. Granis and her sister-in-law recognized Barker as Alex Graham, a telephone solicitor in the professional building where she was a maintenance worker. She called Unsolved Mysteries to report him, and Barker was arrested 18 hours later. Oh, whoa. Apparently on arrest, he said, you got me, and asked for an attorney and made no other statement at the time. Hmm. Quote, you kind of watch with the idea, gee, is there somebody I'm going to know on here? It's exciting Mm -hmm. to watch that type of show, especially when it's real, but not real to you, Granis said. So, and then this part of her interview made me laugh. After helping catch a criminal, however, Granis said that the fascination has worn off. She rarely watches Unsolved Mysteries now. (laughs) I was like, okay. She caught one. She's over it. Been there, done that. (laughs) She's like, I already caught a criminal. I'm done. (laughs) So authorities really didn't think that Barker had specifically sought out Hilda for any reason. Quote, she just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time, Prince William County Commonwealth's attorney Paul B. Ebert said, adding that the two had known each other only a week prior to her death. Hmm. Quote, there's nothing unique about her that makes her more likely a victim than any other unattached woman. That's what makes him so dangerous, he said. Hmm. So here's the other wild thing that came out about Barker. He had been sought by federal authorities for seven years after failing to appear in court on charges of robbing three banks in Las Vegas between December 1983 and March 1984. What? So he just, like, does whatever the hell he wants? Sounds like it. He's an equal opportunity dick bitch. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. All the crimes. All of them. Just open to any crimes. So I tried to find more details on the robberies, but I couldn't find anything. So first, Barker served his sentence for the robberies in a U.S. penitentiary in Colorado until 2003. 
Cahill believed Barker to be a probable serial killer who buried his victims in shallow graves. Oh, my God. Something I read said that UM concluded their segment on Barker by stating, Barker is also a suspect in the killing of the daughter of an FBI agent in Arizona. What? So that was taken out of the edit that we saw. That was not part of it. So Barker ended up being wanted for questioning in six other slayings, including that of Lisa Jo Shaner of Tucson, whose body was found in 1973 near Fort Huachuca. She was the FBI's agent's mm-hmm. daughter that they're talking about. Whoa. And I don't, I was just like, why was it removed from the update? What's happening? Strange. Because Lisa Joe was a pretty big case. Barker agreed to take a lie detector test in January 1997 re- regarding the murder of Lisa Joe Shaner. Barker admitted to having been assigned as a civilian employee at Fort Huachuca in 1973 during the time of Shaner's murder. He said he had heard of the case, but denied any knowledge of or participation in the murder. The FBI conducted the lie detector exam, and Barker, quote, showed deception. No evidence was ever developed to connect Gregory Barker to Lisa Shaner's murder. In 2003, FBI Director Mueller affirmed the case would remain open and active until resolved. In 2011, another man, William Floyd Zamastil, was convicted of Lisa's murder and sentenced to life in prison. So Mm. it turned out not to be him, even though it was kind of lining up. Mm -hmm. Um, Barker was not charged with any of the other murders he was wanted for questioning in, but the police departments handling them believed Barker was the killer. Wow. After finishing his sentence for bank robberies in 2003, Barker was moved to Virginia to begin serving his time for Hilda's murder. He had plea bargained a sentence of 50 years to avoid the remote possibility of a death sentence and ended up being sentenced to six years. He was eligible for parole in 2024, but he died in prison at some point, and I couldn't find when that was. Hmm. So he did. Bye. And it's just wild to me that, like, they could never find anything to connect him to these other cases. Yeah. And then the last thing I have, one of the articles I had used with a little bit of info about him was this article in the L.A. Times in 1992 called Tapping into Mysteries Phone Bank, Television, a ratings bastion for NBC reaches out and touches its audience, solving one out of four cases aired, including Mm. the arrest of 79 suspects. Mm. So it's written by Daniel Cerrone in 1992, um, and it's all about UM. And I was just kind of like, it had some fun stuff in it. I was like, Mm -hmm. what better episode than our season finale? Yeah. So I just pulled a few things from there. So this is all Daniel Cerrone's writing. It's not the whole article. From the moment the program airs on the East Coast each week, phone calls ranging from viewer tips to personal pleas for help pour into the 24-hour phone bank in Los Angeles, where 28 operators record information that leads to a substantial number of resolutions. Quote, that's typical, but we'll have agents run each of these leads down, said Karen Gardner, a special agent with the FBI in Los Angeles who haunts the phone bank Wednesday nights. <laughs> Law enforcement officials from around the country frequently travel there when crimes from their jurisdictions are portrayed on Unsolved Mysteries, Whoa, which is neat. cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. The calls that we roll troops on are those where the people insist they know who the person is Hmm. or when calls come in clusters, when several phone calls identify the same person, Gardner explained. Yes. Mm, Okay. The events depicted fall into such categories (laughs) as unexplained deaths, wanted fugitives, missing persons, (laughs) lost loves, and lost heirs. There's also an occasional Bigfoot or UFO sighting tossed in for good measure. (laughs) 
We are on at 8 p.m., and to do a solid hour of crime stories just seems a little bit heavy, Cosgrove said. So what we want to do is keep the audience involved by throwing change-ups at them. Which is so great. Like, that's why we love what we do here. Yeah, exactly. In 1985, Cosgrove and his partner, Terry Muir, did three missing children specials for NBC called Missing Have You Seen This Person? Did we know about that? Yeah, we did. I think it was hosted by uh, Meredith Baxter Burney. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. To their surprise, 25 people were found as a result of those specials. Quote, the missing children movement was a trend, sadly, that became less a headline and moved into the background, Cosgrove said. Mm -hmm. So we expanded the idea of audience interaction to include all kinds of cases. Quote, even though our stories are 10-minute teases, people want to know what happened, if the mystery was solved, Mirror said. Mm -hmm. So they don't mind waiting a week or two till the updates are aired. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Quote, although you're watching a show without an ending, you know there is a potential for an ending, Cosgrove said. 30 years later, we will give it to you. Oh my gosh. But there does appear to be some blurring of reality and fantasy. Quote, people love Robert Stack, explained Tracy Burzings, one yes. of the phone operators. They call Aww. and they want to tell their problems to Bob. Oh, <laughs> I love that. Quote, when you're dealing with all these evil, venal, nasty, brutal stories, somehow a man like Robert Stack standing in a pool of light gives viewers a sense that all is well in the world, oh said my gosh. producer Chris Pye. That's so nice. He offers a ray of hope. I know, it's so nice. So does Unsolved Mysteries. In five years, so this must have been, well, maybe they were on season four in five years. I'm not sure. In five years, the program has solved about 60% of its lost love cases and located 18% of its missing heirs. Overall, the program solves one out of four cases aired, including the arrest of 79 suspects. Quote, in our own unique way, we all want to make a contribution to the betterment of community that we live in. And Unsolved Mysteries offers that tangible opportunity, said Swanson Carter, the FBI agent in Washington assigned to work with Unsolved Mysteries and America's Most Wanted. The four-year-old Fox series has helped spawn 196 arrests. That's amazing. Yeah, I thought that was a cute little insight that I'm surprised we haven't stumbled upon before. Yeah. Yes, I always want more call or what it, phone room Calling call center. center. Call center, yeah. Stories. Yeah. And, yeah. Fun. And I was surprised cool. to hear, like, authorities would be there that night, like, waiting for stuff yes. to come in. It's amazing. It's amazing. So cool. That was great. Thank you. That was fun. Yeah. I never want to answer any phone call, but that is a phone call I'd want to answer working oh in that gosh, call center. Oh, my gosh, yes. What a dream. Yes, 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 yes. All right, so the last segment of season three, episode 22, the season finale, is a lost love segment. And it is about a woman named Jerry Graves. So Stack intros by telling us that this is a very different kind of lost love story. A young woman in Idaho is searching for her birth parents, not for herself alone, but also for her son. Jerry Graves clings to the fragile hope that her background holds the key to a mysterious illness that threatens her baby's life. Mm. So Jerry and John Graves married in 1989. Jerry had two daughters from a previous marriage, and in 1990, Jerry and John had a son named JJ. John Graves, 
says that when they brought JJ home from the hospital, he noticed that he was convulsing, which scared him because... Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. He thought he was going to die. Mm, that is gosh. terrifying. Yes. So horrible. So Stack says that Jerry and John took JJ to specialist after specialist, but no one could pinpoint the cause of JJ's problems. Little JJ continued to have as many as 50 seizures a day. Mm. I can't believe his little body was even able to handle that. I know. It's so upsetting. Jerry Graves says that throughout JJ's first six months of life, he would get to where he had so many seizures a day that he wouldn't eat. She had to feed JJ with a medicine dropper, and it wouldn't work. So he would become dehydrated, and they would have to bring him to the hospital. Mm. Dr. Thomas Cornwall, JJ's pediatrician, says that the initial guarded optimism that they had when he had a normal tone and initial muscle activity in the first few months of his life has become much more pessimistic. Mm. Jerry says that each time the doctors give her a little bit of bad news, they still tell her there's hope. He has voluntary movement when he's laying down and his foot is tickled. She says that he will move his foot if you tickle it. And that's something that every parent Mm -hmm. with a normal, healthy baby takes for granted. Mm -hmm. She says that she was ready to throw a party when he kicked the covers off himself. Mm. Oh, my gosh. Stack says that when JJ was eight months old, his muscular development stalled at the level of a newborn's. And even after a myriad of tests, doctors could not determine what was causing JJ's seizures or his slow development. Jerry and John began to consider the remote possibility that JJ's illness might be genetic. Jerry had been adopted as an infant, but never before thought about tracking down her birth parents. Jerry says that she's searching to find her biological parents. There is a slim chance that by knowing her medical history, maybe they could find out what is happening with JJ. Mm -hmm. Stack says that Jerry has few clues about her past. She was born Kelly Marie McMillan on November 7, 1963, in Ventura County, California. Her parents were not married, her mother hoped to become a nurse, and her father was of Irish descent. Jerry's adoption records are legally sealed, so she knows little else about her biological parents. 
But I have to say, she knows more about her parents than poor Victor Scheiman and yeah. a lot of other mm-hmm. lost love people. I mean, totally. that's a lot of information to go on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this um, one's just so interesting because apparently she never wanted to seek them out before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think she was nervous about what the reaction would be. And Mm -hmm. I think sometimes it's complicated because people don't want to hurt their adopted parents' Mm -hmm. feelings, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So Jerry remains apprehensive about meeting her biological parents, but she essentially says that she's willing to forego any trauma that may come up by meeting them if there's a chance for JJ. She says she can go through anything. Jerry says that even though JJ may have problems and he may not be normal, he's her baby. He's her son. She says that there is an answer out there and they will find it. Mm. The show provides an update and tells us that after the story aired, Jerry Graves was able to find her biological mother and father, but they don't say what happened at all. So there's hardly anything about this case Mm. out there. I read an article from the Times News from Twin Falls, Idaho, an article that was released on May 3rd, 1991, that Jerry, along with other birth parents and adopted children, were involved with trying to change sealed adoption record Mm. laws in Idaho. The article is about the second annual, quote, Open My Records Day, sponsored by the American Adoption Congress in an effort to increase access to adoption records nationwide. Hmm. The Boise Observance was sponsored by Search Finders of Idaho Incorporated, a nonprofit organization that helps birth parents find their children and adoptive children find their birth parents. Jerry Graves gives a quote. She says that she was recently on NBC's Unsolved Mysteries, but she obviously would have preferred to go the court record route and not have to make all of this Mm -hmm. public to the nation. And then there's another article I found from the South Idaho Press in Burley, Idaho, on March 31st, 1991. And it described a little bit of what life was like for Jerry and John after J.J. was born. So it says, J.J. has been through extensive testing in Boise, Idaho, and Portland, Oregon. Hmm. He's going through physical rehabilitation at the Elks Rehabilitation Hospital and receives daily therapy and care from two certified nursing assistants who come to his home. Hmm. And he's on medication. Quote, more medication in one day than you and I take in a month, Jerry Uh. said. Jerry said, quote, I never before realized the financial strain, the emotional strain, and the physical strain of having a handicapped person in the family. Taking care of JJ is like having three children. Hmm. His disability has taken a toll on the rest of the family as well. Quote, I woke up about a month ago and I thought, I'm ignoring my two daughters. It's changed their lives a lot. Now when my daughters sit down with their dolls, they don't have tea parties or play house. They do therapy and give injections. Oh, wow. And then after she met them, Jerry's parents did agree to have genetic testing done to see if JJ's illness was was in fact genetic. Mm -hmm. However, they were never able to figure out what was wrong with him. And although he survived the odds that the doctors gave him, JJ did pass away on April 30th, 2000. Shortly before his 10th birthday. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Jerry Graves is now, she's now remarried, and she goes by Jerry Lynn. She lives in Idaho, and she's a clinical social worker at a recovery center. And then one last thing, this came up when I was researching Jerry Graves. It's a little snippet of an article, and it says, Mystery Solved, NBC's Unsolved Mysteries, assisted in solving three of the four cases on its Wednesday's broadcast. Within hours of the telecast... Gregory Richard Barker, a fugitive wanted for murder, was apprehended in Phoenix, Arizona. 30 minutes after the program spotlighted Jerry Graves' search for her biological parents, Mm. 
a woman claiming to be Jerry's mother called. Graves was subsequently reunited with her mother. Only hours after the broadcast, another woman's 10-year search for her biological father ended. Duncan Gilmore, 54, of South Carolina, seeing himself profiled on national television, contacted the Unsolved Mysteries Telecenter. Oh, my gosh. So they solved three out of the four cases that were wow. that were featured. Oh How cool gosh, is that? That's so cool. Yeah. And that's it. Hmm. So sadly, they were never able to diagnose JJ. I did see in a comment section there was another parent who floated a, a disease that her two children have that mm. sounded really familiar. Mm-hmm. I can't remember what it was. Mm. I think it might have been related to meningitis or something. That her two children had? Yeah, that Gosh. her two children have. So she said, you know, this is what my kids have and it sounds really familiar. <sighs> So maybe now there's more information out there and they would be able to diagnose him. But sadly, it wasn't genetic. And I mean, it's great that they were telling Jerry that he was going to die very soon. So Uh, 10 years, 10 years is better than none. But yeah, really, really sad sad. story. Yeah. I'm so glad you were able to find something because the update was only about her mom. And I was like, we don't care. We want to know if JJ is okay. Yes. Yeah, I know. I know. And I guess, like, you can't really do an update saying that th- that he passed away. That's kind of... Yeah, true. Yeah. I'm sure that Jerry wouldn't want that. Um, mm. But, yeah, just just a, a difficult case for sure. Yes. Really sad. So sad. I can't, I can't imagine dealing with something like that. Ugh. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, so we're going to wrap up. In season three, what segments or cases the show Unsolved Mysteries was actually responsible for solving? Yes. And it should be noted there was a decent handful that were solved, but just not by UM. Okay. Oh, yes. Totally. So these are the ones that are just solved by people calling in or whatever. Yes. uh, Into the UM call center. So do we just want to take turns one, two, three? Or do we want to do the ones we did? No, because I'm going to have no know. idea. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go first. Okay, in episode one, there was a lost loves case of LeVar Bates. And because of him being on season one. Oh, right. Yes, this one was very cool. Interviewed in the John Mooney segment, his daughter's mom, Peggy, was rewatching the rebroadcast of the third anniversary special when she recognized LeVar. I had that one. I yes. loved them. They were the cutest. She was looking for him. Yeah, 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 yeah. They were like in the 1950s. Yes. They had a love affair and she got mad at him because he had another girl's picture on his mirror. Yes. Yep. I remember this. She was still kind of like hung up on him. and Yep. She was a queen. She was like gorgeous, all done yep. up. And it was great. Love it. Yeah, and just so weird that he happened to be on another segment about a totally unrelated thing. I know, it's amazing. I wonder if we'll ever have that again. Yeah, really. 
Um, I'll go next. Episode one was a wanted segment, and I covered this one. It was the Stockton arsonist, and yes, it was it was solved. Several residents of Redwood City, California, called because they recognized mm-hmm. the house that was on fire, which then authorities compared with a police video of the fire, and it turned out it was I think two teenage boys. Mm-hmm. This is the one, yes, where hit the, that VHS was found on the side of the road. Yeah, the VHS was crucial to it getting solved as well, but they wouldn't have known where the fire ever was without the viewer tips. Yeah, the viewer tips were the ones that they were like, oh, we know this house. Like, this is one guy was like, that's my house on fire. Yeah. So that's how they knew where the fire had taken place. And then they investigated based on that because they knew it was an arson. Yeah. Hmm. That was a good one. So cool. Mm hmm. And then in episode two, there was a lost love segment about Jackie Dragon, best name ever. Right. And she was able to locate her sisters due to viewer tips. Yeah, three sisters, right? I think it was I think three. so. Yeah, that was yeah. wild. And I'm just looking up because I think this is that cute little boy. Yes. Oh, Thomas Heck. Oh, The right. cutest cutie. Episode two and uh, Lost Loves, Thomas Heck, that you can look back into our Instagram of the picture of him when he was little. So, so cute. But he was, I think, adopted out, right? Was that the one where there were five kids? There were a lot of kids. And, and they, they had found them all except, except him. Except him. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that was the one that was like the best reunion. Mm-hmm. It was and the didn't nicest. they have a cake? Yep. Oh, gosh. Um, yeah, so he was found by his adoptive cousin, who he grew up with as his cousin was watching a re-airing of the broadcast and called the telecenter to say, I know who that is. Yeah. Um, and the next one is in episode three, and it was a wanted segment, and it was a man named Eric Kessler. His viewer's tips led authorities to Naples, Florida, where his name was Maynard. I don't remember his first name. He had so many names. Mm-hmm. Um, he was living under the alias of Eric Kelly, but that was the one where he pretended to be German, and they invented that that thing that made your hair different colors. Like you put in a picture, you could oh see what you look like with different colors. Oh my gosh! Color. Yes, <laughs> the Hair Master Three Thousand or something. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. And then episode four, we had one of the sweetest lost loves ever about Sharita mm. Harding. This one was entered into the spreadsheet as yes already, but I couldn't find the details on it. Oh. So I don't know if yeah. it was just viewer tips. I quickly looked it up, and anything that I was able to find just said they were reunited. They were happily reunited. Mm. So Yeah. And then in episode five, the wanted segment for Kay Beeman, she was the correctional officer, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So her and Edgar Kearns, who she helped escape from prison mm-hmm. were recognized by the manager of the motel they were living in. And we love a Snoopy. Mm. This is a Snoopy motel manager. We love to see it. We love do. It. Fully support it. <laughs> they ended up together when they were released from prison. Which, that's nice. I have to At say. At least it was worth it, right? <laughs> Absolutely. It was so worth it. <laughs> the next one is from episode six. It's a Lost Loves of Martha Hinkle. And a viewer contacted the Hinkles saying that she'd found Martha. I don't remember Martha I think Hinkle. she was the one that was half of a set of twins. Oh, oh, right. Yes. Right. And she, had she passed away? The sister. Oh, the sister did. Yeah. Right. Before she got to know. So, but she got to meet their children, her children. I don't remember that one. Yeah. 
Yeah, she got to meet her sister's children. But this one was a little different because they contacted the family. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, in episode six, we had a wanted segment about Kenneth Stanton. And multiple viewers called in saying that Stanton was living in a trailer park in Moraine, Ohio. And he was the one that was really gross looking, right? The He was the child monster. Pedophile, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And in episode, then we jump all the way to episode 16. Yeah. Wow. So not, not a good streak between episode 7 and 15 of this. <laughs> Although, yeah, a lot of these have been re-edited together. So this is, I guess, not the true season 3. The That's true. true original season yeah. 3. Yeah. Well, and like I said, some of them were solved in between there. They just were not. Yes, that true. Yeah. Right. Yeah, this is just what Unsolved Mysteries help do. So episode 16, Joe Smith, who was the murderer in that house, right? Yeah, hiding in that house. Yeah, he attacked the homeowner and he murdered his wife and his two stepdaughters. Um, So a viewer reported Joe living in a motel in L.A. He escaped before authorities came, but they eventually caught uh, him once they were on him. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, I didn't know how to type that out. Like, if they didn't get the viewer tip, they couldn't have been on his trail, basically. <laughs> I love that so much. Yeah, I may, it makes sense. Um, and then episode 17. I'm cheating on this one. <laughs> episode 17, Steve Wilson. <laughs> this one was solved, but... <laughs> <laughs> we we need to qualify that Carlin has written this out for us, so we're basically getting Carlin's stream of consciousness as we're reading this to you. This yeah. is this has not been edited or reviewed by the three of us. So Carlin writes, Steve Wilson, this one was solved by America's most wanted, but still. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it it still proves the power of these shows, you know? That's so I just, true. So I just true. wanted to include it. I, I love it. Episode 17, we also had a Lost Loves about Frankie Bloomer. And this was the one where there was a photo of some soldiers that had survived a ship sinking, and the family thought he was in the photos. And then UM received a written letter from one of the survivors of the USS Rowan, Mm. and they were able to, that person was able to confirm he was not in the picture and that he had gone down with the ship. Yeah. So it was solved in a sad way. Mm hmm. Oh, gosh. Okay. And then. In episode 18, A Lost Loves, Aletha Everts, who was looking for her siblings. Yes. Mm-hmm. And she was able to find them thanks to viewer tips, but there no were no extra details because she wanted privacy. But yes, it was solved from UM. Um, and then episode 19, uh, The Final Appeal of Patty Stallings. Um, after they aired the initial segment, several physicians familiar with MMA called UM hoping to help Patty with her appeal. I don't remember. What does MMA stand for? Methyl, methylmalonic acidemia. I think that one is particularly cool. I think that, that one was amazing. Was Doctors amazing. were like, uh, no. Yeah. They were like, get this woman out of prison. Yeah. And if that boy hadn't have her second son had not been born, she would still be there. I know. Okay, and then in episode twenty, we had the wanted segment of Dennis DePew. His girlfriend Mary later found out that her boyfriend, who she knew as Hank, 
had been on Unsolved Mysteries that night and was, in fact, Dennis DePew, wife murderer. Mm-hmm. And she made him some nasty sandwiches. <laughs> she sure did. For his road trip. Her name was Linda. She went by Mary on the show. But, oh. um, she mm. Yeah, she used a pseudonym but then spoke to the press. So her name was Linda. And episode 21, a missing persons case of Astarte Davis, although she's not a missing person. She was really wanted. Her mm-hmm. husband was missing. <laughs> Her husband was missing, yes. And after her segment re-aired in 2002, a viewer recognized her in Spokane, and she was arrested. None other than Spokane. All roads lead there. All roads. (laughs) And then in episode 22, we had Duncan Gilmore, uh, Gregory Barker, and Jerry Graves. So, not bad. I feel like we've had seasons where more were solved by UM. But I could be wrong. I don't know. I, I thought, thought this was this was know. pretty I feel good. Like that was a lot. Oh yeah, yeah. I don't know. Okay, things to share or feel. Oh boy, you guys go first. I'm not prepared. Um, I was gonna talk about something, but I don't really feel that great. So maybe I won't talk. Well, maybe I will. I just want to quickly. <laughs> Are you gonna pass out? On no, us? I'm okay. Is that I'm what okay. that means? I'm like worse. I'm like I'm like yeah. I'm fine. Um. So I just want to quickly, we had an issue in our Facebook group this week, and um, it, it was not awesome, and I don't think it was handled particularly well. And I, I just, I want to apologize to the person who initially did the post. She knows who she is. I'm sure, I hope that she's still listening. Um, but she's, she left the group, and I don't think that that's right. So I would love for her to come back to the group because she was really engaged with us, and she's a really wonderful a wonderful person, and um, I just want to remind everybody that when you write a comment, there is somebody, like, on the other side of that comment. So, you know, maybe don't comment things that you wouldn't say to somebody if they were sitting in the same room as you. Yeah. Like, um, you know, I have bipolar disorder, so, like, my whole life is impulse control and not being able to control my initial impulses and double-checking my impulses. And I feel like on the Internet, everybody has <laughs> – my version of bipolar disorder. Absolutely. That is a great um, way to describe it. Because mm-hmm. it seems as though no one has any impulse control. And I understand that the post was really triggering and very upsetting to many of our listeners. And I honor that. And I, I agree that the, the post was upsetting. Um, but we need to make sure that when we are arguing with people, we're not attacking them. And we're also trying to educate, right? Because screaming into someone's face about something and calling them disgusting and Mm -hmm. attacking them is not going to invoke any sort of education or change. It's just going to make the person feel bad. And I don't want that. I really, I I hate social media for this, for for this and a million other reasons. Um, But I do, I like our Facebook group. So I I don't, I just don't want it to go in a direction like this. So I just really want everyone to be kind to each other. Just because we all like unsolved mysteries doesn't mean that we all agree on literally everything. Um, So you just have to like, just please recognize that the person that you're speaking to in our group is someone that is part of our community. So don't, don't attack anybody. And I also think when someone types three sentences, you don't know everything that they were thinking. And when someone is typing that, they might be assuming slash hoping that you're going to know that they're typing this with good intent. Yes. And I feel like that was completely forgotten in the, in a lot of the replies. Um, and yeah, we need to don't make us shut it down, but let's not act that way. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 
Let's Truly. Just be nice. The internet's terrible. Yeah. There's enough division out in the world. Yeah, exactly. We don't need it in our fan group. Yeah, we don't need it in our <laughs> Facebook group. So, yeah, I just wanted to address it. And I do I do want to apologize to that listener. And yeah. I hope that she's listening. And I hope she comes back. Because yep. she's a good person. And she didn't deserve that. That's my feelsy. Okay. Love it. Okay. Um, well... Uh, mine is maybe an apology because I think I poo-pooed this of somebody else's feelsy. <laughs> oh, I'm sure I ha- don't have a... Sh- that wouldn't sh- surprise me at all. Go Did ahead. Did you initially say that something was bad and then No, I just said mind? I would never watch that. I would never. <laughs> yeah. I think someone shares The Queen's Gambit before. I did! Yeah. It's, it's so not cute. at all what I thought it was about. I had no idea what it was about, and it's a really good show. We've been watching yeah. it. We're not done with it yet, but we've been like blazing through it. It's really good. It's people delightful. love it. Yeah, I've never seen it, but people love it. It's a delightful. I thought thought. it was about royalty, and you know I don't care. <laughs> no, no, no. Like you're just mixing that up with the crown. The crown. <laughs> it's called the Queen's <laughs> Gambit. That's a chess move. I know. Yes. That now. I know that now. (laughs) Okay. Mine is, we just started it, um, but it's an HBO docuseries called Exterminate All the Brutes by filmmaker Raul Peck. I hope I'm saying his name right, but he um, wrote I Am Not Your Negro. Okay. And... It is all about the origins of white supremacy from long ago and how it's infiltrated every cultural group and ethnic group uh, all around the world. And it's really moving and it's a really important watch, but it's tough. Mm -hmm. Like, it's violent and, but I think everyone needs to watch it. And I'm, we're learning a lot. Also, the people that put it together are just so smart, and it's so informative, beautifully done, moves back and forth in time, but, like, connects things really well. Uh, It's just great. So I highly recommend. Awesome. Okay. Okay. So. That's it. That's a wrap. We did it. For season three. Oh, my gosh. So on to... On to season four. What are we talking about next episode? I'm not sure until I open this doc. Well, I'll go first. I have an unexplained segment for season four, episode one, the premiere of the Rendlesham Forest Incident, which, don't you worry, did UM give 20 minutes of content to this (laughs) segment? They absolutely did. Yeah, but I think this segment is like, of all of the UFO segments, it's the one that people believe the most, right? I would agree. It's supposed to be the UK's Roswell. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, And then I have the unexplained death of Shane Stewart and Sally McNelly, and we're going to get a little satanic panic going on, so don't worry about it. It's been a bit. It's been since season one, hasn't it? It's been a minute, yeah. but it's coming back, and it's coming back hard. Mm-hmm. Ouija boards, Dungeons and Dragons, the whole thing. Oh, oh my gosh, so many things. I can't wait. <laughs> and then we have a Lost Loves about Carla Downing, and we have a fully filmed and segment-length update. So what am I going to do? I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> You're going to parrot it back to us. Yeah. You're going to perform it. <laughs> yeah, but pan- pantomime it so no one can hear it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Okay, so as we have been discussing, we love you all so much, and we so appreciate when you rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. I wanted to read a few from some true sweeties who've left some reviews. So Lady Avery Beckett said, don't be a blood dummy, honey, (laughs) (laughs) which I love. These incredible ladies take precious hours out of their busy lives to make our busy lives a lot more bearable. Anyone who thinks these true sweeties are, quote, annoying AF must be tasteless AF because these ladies are some incredibly fierce, humorous, and intelligent individuals with whom I would die to have a drink. Ugh, you are too nice, honey. They make my two-hour commute a lot less lonely to the point where I now look forward to getting into my car to go to work early on Monday mornings. Oh, I love that. Keep up the good work, honey. So nice. Yeah. I love that feeling when my favorite podcasts come out and I'm like, oh, yes, I have an yes. hour. Yeah. Yes. And that's a true fan. That is the season one, episode one title, honey. Blood Dummy. Blood Dummy. And then Woofda <laughs> said, just said, love, so good. We love women with voices. <laughs> <laughs> So we love it. So yeah, we'll read some more. Maybe we'll read yours. Thank you for leaving them. We're still doing a magnet giveaway while we have them. So if you leave a review, screenshot it. We appreciate them so much. And you can send them to our podcast Gmail address, which is resolvemysteriespodcast at Gmail. Send that screenshot of your review with your mailing address and we'll send you a magnet while we still have them. And you should put it like on your work fridge so that other people see it and are like, oh my God, what is that? (laughs) Yeah, and then you can be like, let me tell you all about how much you're going to love this show. Wow. Just a suggestion. Just a suggestion. It's just a suggestion. Put it on your car. Put it on your face. Just stick it on your forehead. (laughs) Put it on your braces. It'll probably stick. (laughs) Seriously, though, like this, we're recording this a little in advance, but after our last our two episodes came out where we talked about leaving reviews. People were so nice and jumped right on it, and we appreciate it so much. So thank you for taking the time. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, also subscribing really helps, so you can get updates on when the episodes come out weekly now. Excuse me very much. (laughs) It's every Monday. And... For every review we receive, we donate a dollar to an organization, and this month's is National Asian Pacific American Women's Forum, so you can help them out as well. And another way to support the show and get extra content is going to patreon.com slash podcast. And if you subscribe at the $5 a month level or higher, you'll get ad-free episodes, two extra episodes a month, and other goodies in the mail. To see photos we reference in the episode, follow us on Instagram at Resolve Mysteries Podcast, on Facebook and Twitter at Resolve the Pod. And you can contact us at ResolveMysteriesPodcast.com. And like I said, ResolveMysteriesPodcast at gmail.com or at our P.O. Box 14005, Portland, Oregon, 97293. Keep sending us your stories for listener short stacks so we can keep making them. Anything you want to send. And y'all, we did it. One, two, three seasons. Yay! Thank you for being with us. We love you and we're excited for season four and who knows how long this will keep going. (laughs) (laughs) It's another mystery. We love you so. Thank you so much. We love you. Bye. Goodbye. Mm, Bye. (laughs) 
I'm recording. Okay, I'm recording. <laughs> now I gotta find the window again. <laughs> Damn it! You need like you so need to. Use I don't know where it goes. You just gotta learn some keyboard Not shortcuts. Sound <laughs> I know. I think it's because it's open somewhere. Sorry. <laughs> How can I don't you know why it's not in the bottom so bar. <laughs> what is, is there to click on? <laughs> Just, I have always so many windows open at once. <laughs> um, make okay. sure your make sure your pee poppers are far enough away from your mine is. Mm-hmm. Mine's always. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. okay. Brag. <laughs> <laughs> My table is large. What can I say? <laughs> pee popper brag. <laughs> All right, you count okay. us down, Katie. One, two, three. <laughs> nice. Okay. Darlin. <laughs> you know I'm always silently judging. It's okay. Uh, not silently. <laughs> I didn't say anything. You said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're right, I did. Okay.